invited to a centennial celebration. What they were celebrating wasn't important, and it sounded like a heap of fun until 2,000 maniacs crazed for carnage started bathing an entire town in pulsing human blood. You'll see six young strangers doomed to slaughter by an ancient curse. There came an awful sound. And from his lips there came an awful sound. Brutal, evil, ghastly beyond belief. You'll see the most diabolical device ever contrived, designed solely for assassination by a town of madmen, insane with bloodlust. Stonewall took a gun and he made the Yankees run, but he. 2,000 maniacs. Gruesomely stained in blood color. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker, and joining me as always is Pat Mitchell. Howdy, Pat. Hello. How howdy they are, Adam. Thanks for coming down to my suburban centennial. <laughs> I love that. Who's your hospitality? <laughs> Let's go get some pork tenderloins and watch the cars are racing. <laughs> all right. So, Pat, we've been doing this game all season. So, we'd be remiss to not do it this time. But are you ready to do a little stump the chump? Where I pick a guy or a gal or a a non-binary, whoever, from the world of cinema, and you need to guess who it is. Based on their filmography. Based off of their filmography. Thank you very much. Let's hear it. I'm massaging my brain. I'm getting the juices flowing. I'm ready. I was really thinking for a second that you were going to say, I'm massaging my balls. That too. I got two hands. Your ball brain. brain balls. <laughs> uh, your brain skid balls. My okay. lower brain. So we're going to do it. We got a month. Uh, uh, mo- a month. I'm a fucking idiot. Damn, a I wouldn't know if you can guess it. In a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We got a whole month. <laughs> Pulling up. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. So I'm pulling him up. Pulling them up, and I'm going to set the timer. And I'm trying to think, because I don't like to go. It really depends. So I don't, you know, given who the person is, I like to start at certain 
points in their filmography. So, you know, if it's somebody that we're going way back, I'm just like, you're not going to get this. So take your Anyways. creative liberties with it. Okay. So I'm ready to go. And here we go. Starting with one minute on the timer. Wolfen, 1981. Eddie Macon's Run, 1983. Easy Money, also 1983. Tales from the Dark Side, the series, 1984. Uh, The Man with One Red Shoe, 1985. FX, 1986. Got 30 seconds on the clock. Manhunter, also 1986. Tom Noonan. Yeah, there you go, my man. I knew as soon as we get to Manhunter, you would figure it out. I was was sweating for a second. Ding, ding, ding. Good job, my friend. Okay, so let's get... We're both at three and two on the year. So now we're both above 500. Yeah, we're doing okay. All right. I wanted to talk to you about my little adventures that I've been having here because I feel like it will be a nice segue in today's movie. But uh, so, you know, I was mentioning to you on the way up here, I, I did a little bit of a detour and I went to the Uranus Fudge, fudge Shop and yeah. General Store. Which is uh, really wild because on my way back to the house, I saw a billboard for said fudge plant, shop, fudge shop, whatever, fudge factory, and took a picture of it. We took a picture of the same. That just shows how uh, mature we are for our ages. Well, I did want to take pictures of the billboards, but I, I felt it was too dangerous to stop on the on the shoulder of the highway to take oh, pictures of I billboards. Took, I had both kids in the car and my wife and just, <laughs> I was like, honey, grab the wheel. I've got to take a picture of this giant Uranus billboard and I'll kill us to do it. Well, it's funny because I do the same thing living in Seattle now where I intentionally just kind of disregard any of the, uh, the touristy spots. Cause I'm like, whatever I live here, you know, maybe I'll go there someday. But now being back, I made it a point to go there because I've seen those billboards. But I'm sure you live in here. You, you're like, I'm not going to go here, but I'll, 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 I'll get a good chuckle out of the billboards. Yeah, I, I'm. I also just don't know where Anderson, Indiana is. So it could be you far or close, or I, I assume it's close because you came here in a rather speedy manner. So I imagine that it's. Somewhat close to us or to me. Do you not do you not go do you not go up north sixty nine that often? I'd not uh, to anything that I would have known where Anderson is. No, because it's literally like it's the next town up from here going north, and it's right off the. This highway. is about as far north as I get. Is where I live is about as far north as I'm willing to go. <laughs> Well, anyways, so I went there, and also yesterday I took a trip to Decatur, Indiana, because I had heard tale of a famous monster's pizza parlor, and so I wanted to go there as well. And so Decatur, Indiana has this B-movie-themed pizza parlor, and it was fantastic. 
That was super fun. That's awesome. It was super fun. They have two big movie screens on either side of the dining room. So, like, it doesn't matter where you're sitting. You can watch the movies. And last night we got to watch The Crawling Hand. Oh, (laughs) nice. Yeah. And all the the menu items, of course, are are monster movie themed. So, I I got – it was like the Vampirico Taco Pizza or something. (laughs) Nice. That's awesome. You did a – you're going to hate to hear this, but you did like a House of a Thousand Corpses-esque uh, Americana uh, side of the road crawl, which is what the premise of House of a Thousand Corpses is, obviously. is They're trying to find the freakiest roadside attractions. You did like a mini little Indiana version of it. Right. So the segue that I wanted to <clears> – <throat> Was not into House of a Thousand Corpses. Not into House of a Thousand Corpses, (laughs) but into tonight's movie because I love spots like this because I love kitschy, campy, silly things. And tonight's movie, of course, is exactly that. Yeah, we're talking about 2000 Maniacs. This is our first Herschel Gordon Lewis film. So, and for those of you that do not know, Herschel Gordon Lewis was a very famous American director that came to prominence in the mid to late 60s into the early 70s and essentially stopped making movies. But he is also known by his, his famous moniker, the Wizard of Gore, the Godfather of Gore. Um, he also Fantastic had a Fantastic nickname. That's a great nickname. Yeah, he also had a movie, one of his later movies called The Wizard of Gore. Mm, But he got mm -hmm. that moniker because he was the first American director to display in his movies very, very over-the-top visceral visceral gore. It hadn't been done up to the point where uh, when he started making movies. And his most famous movie is Blood Feast. Which I love yeah. Blood Feast, but he did it that as a, the first movie in what is considered a series of movies called the Blood Trilogy. So we had Blood Feast first, we had 2000 Maniacs, and then we had Color Me Blood Red. They were all kind of done in succession. And, yeah, 63, uh, 64, 65. Yeah. And I love all those movies, but I wanted to talk about 2000 Maniacs because I think it is his finest of the three and it is my favorite Herschel Gordon Lewis movie. So, um, and if we're listening to last, the last episode, we covered freaks and I felt that I wanted to move this movie into the queue of discussion because it would piggyback nicely on our way, maybe making back into talking about eighties films, depending on, 80s and 90s films or whatever we go from here um, to talk about the progression of transgressive exploitation psychotronic cinema because um, H.G. Lewis was in many ways the, uh, the, the mastermind of American exploitation cinema. He, he basically, he, he, um, he mastered the craft of, of that arena of cinema. 
So that's why I kind of. And we to talked talk about, about last week about how there was like this reappraisal that happened in the '60s um, with not just film, but you know, art was being just reappraised, you know, across the cultural landscape. So a movie like Freaks was like, you know, dusted off and and given kind of a reappraisal of sorts. And so it kind of started this huge kick of, uh, of horror movies again, kind of just doing whatever they wanted and, you know, maximizing shock value. So I think it's important to especially look at this film from a 1964 lens, uh, because I don't think it like shocks or appalls by today's standards of, insanity but i looked at it and i always watch it as like i can't imagine what people thought watching this in 1964 like people just couldn't have been ready for it um so i'll i'll say that as well but that yeah i do love this movie uh, quite a bit that's great um so yeah and to kind of give like um more of a definition of what because there's a lot of ways i think you can look at exploitation cinema but from herschel gordon lewis's standpoint what made it exploitative was he because he was an ad guy he was an ad marketing guy that got into film and really his whole point in getting into this sort of film was to make a quick buck Um, It had nothing really to do with the art of cinema necessarily. He just was really smart about being able to tap into things that would bring people, put butts in seats, essentially, that would bring people to theaters to get shocked and awed by the subject matter. And I mean, exploitation cinema had a history before this. But again, like I said, he kind of perfected it at this point. Um, Because exploitation cinema goes all the way back to like the 30s with like road shows and things like that, where they would show what they call like hygiene movies, (laughs) where Mm. people would go to be able to see naked people and people having sex under the premise that it was a educational film. Mm. And, you know, like H.G. Lewis kind of cut his teeth learning and being around guys like that. And, you know, the... uh, the idea behind exploitation cinema was that the, the plot and the actual, the mechanics of the film itself were subservient to the promotional aspect of it. It was more about like just the, the tabloid sensational aspect of splashing it out there and getting people into like pay, pay for the tickets, you know? So, yeah, he ran it. He was like a carny. <laughs> He's just, yeah, it's exactly it. And that's the thing that history of exploitation cinema has its origins in carny marketing, you know, the carny yeah. way of bringing people to the show, the, the freak show. Again, going back to talking about freaks, bringing people to the freak show. This was an updated way of bringing people to the freak show. Yeah, intrigue them enough to uh, to want to you know pay to see it, and then gross them the fuck out. Well, <laughs> you know, do whatever you want to them because they've already paid. And so, by word of mouth alone, those people will walk out shocked and appalled, and and 
say how unfathomably disgusting this was. And then that only intrigues people that never, never works the way it is, the, the way it's intended by those people. And John Waters, another example of this carny filmmaking knew that people would go see his films and then walk out. And then people that are waiting in line in the theater will overhear people being so disgusted <laughs> that they'll almost change their minds as to what movie they're going to go see in line. So he understood this, this line of thinking, just like Todd Browning before him and, and just like H.G. Lewis as well. Right. So we have this, this lineage, this line of these type of directors and filmmakers that all, you know, yeah, they had that intent. They had the, the intent of shocking people to get them to change their minds or just see like the train wreck yeah. on the screen, you know, yeah. and, pay, and paying for the pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> right. So anyways, so that being said, uh, the synopsis of this movie is six people are lured into the deep South for a centennial celebration at Pleasant Valley. It's a little town there off the beaten path of, uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's Georgia, somewhere on the way to Florida. You can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So these folks, they're on, they're making their way. It's two different groups of people that are making their way to different destinations in Florida. And they get, uh, they get duped into coming to Pleasant Valley and, and, and being a part of the, the centennial celebration. They're the guests of honor. They're the, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're the surprise guests of honor. And, uh, the, the denizens of Pleasant Valley basically kill them one by one as revenge, uh, for the town's destruction during the civil war. So that's basically the premise of this. Um, I don't have numbers as far as uh, the gross. The budget was $65,000, it says. And again, it goes back to this whole idea that H.G. Lewis was hired to make a quick buck, make a cheap, quick buck. Turn it around, yeah. yeah. From what, and from what I know, all of his films at this time were financial successes by uh, by every metric. Yeah, 65000 You don't even have to get that many butts in seats to... to- even break even right even then if you're like you know charging five bucks a head or whatever yeah so and critical reception at the time was pretty uh pretty panning i would say but these movies have all of course have accrued a legendary mythic status at this point but just to read a few uh, <clears throat> reviews that i i read these are more modern reviews uh, it said it didn't take long. It didn't take much to thrill early splatter fans. And 2000 maniacs proves it with its shrill soundtrack, basement level theatrics and goofy flesh hair and gore. And also driving gore King, Herschel Gordon Lewis reached a creative peak with the darkly comic slaughter fest with this darkly humor, uh, darkly comic slaughter fest, excuse me. Um, and also, Remarkably durable and referred to as one of the sickest movies ever made. So there you huh. go. There's so, um, but I wanted to kind of read uh, this off too that I read that I feel really encapsulates like the, um, I guess the the zeitgeist of this movie, and you know despite the fact that it has all kinds of technical flaws and clearly was made on a budget, um, I like having a discussion about this movie, not just because of its 
trajectory or like its lineage in the, or sorry, excuse me, its place in the trajectory of cinema and how it was the, the type of movie that kind of leveled up how people would create movies from here on out, but also how exploitation cinema and HG Lewis tapped into these certain fears that the American public had. So I want to just read some of these things where um, I, I feel like it, it really t- talks about these kind of ideas well. The 2000 Maniacs was one of the early films to introduce audiences to the form- formulaic plot of Southern gore films or Hicksploitation. Northern outsiders who were stranded in the rural South um, are horrifically murdered by virulent backwoods Southerners. The subgenre of Grindhouse peaked with the release of Tobe Hooper's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and 2000 Maniacs has been credited as being influential on Hooper's film. So that's one interesting thing to think about is this through line from this exploitation grindhouse sort of um, genre with its apotheosis, more or less, with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So that's an interesting yeah. way to, to look at this. I- when I saw, I love the, first of all, I saw the term exploitation. That's fucking hilarious. Um, but then it got me thinking of the obvious being Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I think this is also a predecessor to Deliverance, which is done in, in yeah. a more serious capacity. But even in modern horror, you have like nine wrong turn movies. I, and I actually love a handful of those wrong turn movies, um, which is this exact formula, which is, is, is just, you know, stumbling across a, uh, a, you know, a backwoods society of inbred people that are, that are just there to, to kill tourists or anyone who happens across their path. So it's still to this day, those are all the wrong turn movies are modern, uh, you know, conceptions of, of this formula. Right. And then I want to read this last thing that I think uh, also helps uh, at least kind of crystallize this concept in why this kind of film was happening at the time that it did. But uh, during the civil rights movement in the United States, television and mainstream narrative films used the rednecks caricature rather than a realistic depiction of white Southerners like the televised news of the era. However, Lewis's plotline in 2000 Maniacs focused on the ghosts of a violent, vengeful confederacy. It acknowledged the region's violent history and place and the anxiety of the rest of the United States. The film has been noted by scholars as sensationalizing historical anxieties that the rest of the nation held toward the South's history and that of its white inhabitants of extra legal violence, perceived primitivism and unresolved regional conflict. So again, you know, a a through line also of just horror in general and exploitation is tapping into um, the fears and anxieties of white middle-class America. (laughs) And this is just one of those examples. And we've talked about that plenty. Uh, throughout the podcast is, you know, how these different films tap into um, that anxiety and fear that the white folk have of everything. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, but this is particularly interesting because the other in this instance 
are also white folk. <laughs> so this is like, there's like a, a vicious circle of, it's like that Spider-Man meme of the Spider-Man, Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. It's sure. like white, white, uh, Northern white people fearful of, uh, this backwoods population of other white people. And they're like pointing at each other. <laughs> right. And that just opens up that whole discussion of whiteness is a spectrum. So, you know, at one point, Italians weren't considered white, quote unquote. Yeah. Irish weren't considered white, quote unquote. Jewish people. You know what I mean? So there's this whiteness spectrum that has occurred. And depending on how close close you are to essentially affluence, you know, that makes you more white. That is able to... Um, <clears throat> It's able to deign you with more privilege related to your whiteness. So, so anyways, so that's why I think this movie is interesting. Um, Do you have anything else to add before we get into the movie? In in terms of uh, where I land on the white spectrum, I'd say I'm an Asperger's. So Asperger's. (laughs) You're also Greek, so technically, I guess you'd also, by your ethnicity, be not completely white. That's true. I was speaking more to the fact that I don't have a filter, and and so <laughs> much, much like many of the the clients that I serve in the community, I relate to their inability to bullshit people in right. in day to day society, and I really envy <laughs> their ability to do it sometimes. So that was not a knock on anyone on the spectrum. I, I genuinely I, I am envious of some of their qualities, honestly. Yeah. All right, so let's get into it with the good, the bad, and the questionable. There's a story you should know from a hundred years ago, and a hundred years we've waited now to tell. Now the Yankees come along and they'll listen to this song and they'll wake in fear to hear this rebel yell. And they'll wake in fear to hear this rebel yell. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. Starting with the good. So one thing I really like about this era of films, I like about grindhouse exploitation films up to the 70s and throughout the 60s is I love the design aesthetic that goes into it. And that is, you know, talking about the promotional aspect. So I love the lettering. I love the lettering that it's used for the title card. And I love how all of these elements translated into the promotional packaging of these movies. And that was developed even more throughout the eighties where it's a common thing that people talk about with these type of movies is sometimes the promotional artwork is better than the movie itself. You know what I mean? I, well, I agree with you on tenfold. Uh, basically the first thing I put down was I'm a big fan of the opening sequence, particularly the title screen and the font used. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, that was the, my, the first thing I thought when 
when 2000 maniacs comes on the screen, you know, and it fills the screen, it's, it's great. It, it really, it really draws you in. But I also agree with you that the promotional materials specifically for this film, but these, these movies in general, almost outlast and outshine the, the film itself. I would, I would agree with that. I love all the 2000 maniacs posters and, promotional material they they look like wanted posters like wild wild right. west kind of wanted posters i i love they make it feel a lot more dangerous than it actually is right and that's the genius of of these movies and and again the the marketing aspect the 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 understanding of the psychology of what grabs people's attention and keeps their attention and also very smart use of understanding how people react to color. So the fact that like all these films, their themes are blood and redness and you know, that catches your eye because we have that visceral psychological subconscious reaction to things that look red, you know, and, and that could be, uh, there's a multitude of interpretations for that, but you know, most of the time people view it as being again, like it's the blood, it's the, it's the, the, the visceral sort of, um, gore and, and things like that, or the, the life's blood and, you know, just, so it, it, it really taps into this internal dialogue about our mortality and things like that. So mm-hmm. right off the bat. Yeah. Like that a lot. Um, <clears throat> I, I genuinely do like that theme song. I think it's very catchy. And I think that's another smart thing um, about Herschel Gordon Lewis films is because he had an integral part in creating the theme songs and the music as well. His son was a musician and I know he wrote like some of the songs and played some of them for his movies. So, um, you know, he's trying to stay true to, the regional flavor of music and he gets talented people to write the, the songs, the theme songs for this. So I like that as well. And I like how it has like a continual um, place throughout this movie, obviously like the music is very important to the narrative clearly. And it is it, especially the, the like driving kind of, banjo riff is very reminiscent of uh, of deliverance as well like right. you know i i wonder actually if if they were inspired by by that by this somehow yeah i i'm sure it was i'm sure like it's it's another example of talking about how the dna of these type of movies are are um reproduced later on you know and we mm-hmm talked about that with freaks i'm pretty sure and then maybe you know oh well we were really having that discussion with king king of comedy i was trying to think of like specifically there was a recent movie where we were talking about this cult underappreciated movie that its dna and influence is more apparent and more has more of an imprint on culture than the movie itself yeah i mean yeah so, and yeah, so I feel that with this as well. Um, so talking about the acting, 
overall, this is how I see this. <laughs> this that is the fork in the road here. Yeah. So we have two camps here, not just on the screen, but in terms of like how they are able to uh, deliver um, the characters. But we have the Yankee folk that get duped. And then we have, of course, the Pleasant Valley folk, the, the hillbillies and the hicks and the rednecks. I will say unequivocally, the people that were cast to play the rednecks and residents of Pleasant Valley, they play their characters to the nines. I love everybody in that part of the cast. They're doing it so well, and they're really, they're really leaning into it. The Yankees, however, they're not doing so hot in many ways than one, be it all, be it their survival instincts and their ability to smell out, <laughs> you know, a bad situation, but also in the acting department as well. Now, it's not as fun of a role, you know, the, yeah. they, they really get to lean in to playing like, uh, especially like the mayor or whatever title yeah. he is. He's, he's like classic huckster, like foghorn leghorn fucking <laughs> right. caricature. But that's so much more fun to play. Um, and when I, the thing I like about it is Tom, when he's in the phone booth, he pretends to be Southern for a second. And then he has to drop, he forgets to drop the accent because he forgets, he forgets he's doing it. Right. And it kind of plays on that idea of like, this is like a blondes have more fun kind of movie. Like the, the rednecks have more fun in this movie. Absolutely. It had to have been from an acting perspective, way more fun. Cause yeah, it is uh it's actually kind of a, it's kind of it's kind of hard to sit through really long periods of any of the Yankee dialogue. It's it's it just doesn't age uh, well either. A lot of a, a lot of the dialogue and and the interpretations of the acting doesn't age well. It's like nineteen fucking sixty four. So sure, sure, you know, sixty years ago. Yeah, but yeah, specifically like there's Gary Bakeman who played Rufus, and then there's Jeffrey Allen who played Mayor Buckman. I really like them. They're just like so much fun. But as they're far just as like going the, for it, yeah, they're going for it. Yeah, they've got like it's like uh, all gas, no brakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as the Yankees go, I really do like William Kerwin. Who William Kerwin was like a regular in the H.G. Uh, Lewis kind of cast, so he had recurring roles. He was in Blood Feast as well. I like him. He plays Tom. I believe or Tom is the most uh, palatable, but yeah, you the rest of the Yankees are such a uh, it's such a wash that like I just get them all. I, I also just get them confused with one another because they're just void of any and all personality that they, they all kind of blend together as like the same white boring person, right? And I'm sure that was all intentional. H.G. Lewis was a smart guy, even when it came to his casting. But he also, yeah. you know, he had to he had to work with what he had. So I'm sure that that was intentional where he just picked people that kind of you could swap them out pretty easily. Like this guy looks like that guy. This lady looks like this lady. Um, but also we have this trope here that appears in horror movies where you make the victims unsympathetic. <laughs> you don't sympathize. So they're easier to dispatch throughout the movie. 
And it's like or just vapid. It's definitely a Friday the Thirteenth. Like they all have topless girl sun tanning at the lake vibes. Like they're all like dispatchable. Although there's no like there's no you know sexual promiscuity going on, but they're all they just all have the vapidity of of that of those kind that kind of stereotype in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Sure, not to the degree they do in later films, but there is promiscuity because you have the the couple, the the Millers, that they're just looking to fuck other people. As soon as they get there, they're like that, and they get duped pretty easy to separate and kill off. You know what That's I mean? True. Yeah. So we do have that at least. Um, the gore. This is the earliest representation of gore that you can get, but I really like it. And I like the bright red aspect to the solution or the, the mixture that was made um, for the blood because it's so distinctively HG Lewis. And that goes back to that, you know, the, the psychological visceral reactions to seeing blood is it clearly looks fake, but because it's so bright it has that aesthetic to it that's so unique to these films. And the gore is brutal. I mean, it's, you know, you got to suspend disbelief, but, you know, the one lady gets her finger cut off and then gets her arm cut off. Um, and then the other guy, he gets drawn and quartered. So let's go down the list. So how the victims yeah. each get, get killed off. So we got, again, we got the lady who gets her arm cut off. We get the guy that gets wrong quartered. We've got the barrel roll, which is yeah. the best one. The barrel roll is the best death of all of them, if you ask me. And then you have the the rock, the giant rock on the dunk tank platform. Yeah, that one's fun. <laughs> it's just those four because four of the six die, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I really like the creative ways of utilizing gore and death. I love the creativity behind uh, all the deaths. And yeah, it's got that giallo blood. That's the same kind of vibe that would later go on into later giallo movies. But um, yeah, I I think I think it's fun in a final destination way where I'm like, I am intrigued to see like what kind of creative deaths uh, are on the docket. Um, So it's fun from a you know that these people are going to die and you're just ready for the setup of exactly how it works. And yeah, they come up with really cool and inventive ways of doing it. And yeah, it's, it's campy and schlocky kind of gore, but it's not, it's also 1964 and it's like the earliest representation of dramatic gore. So I think I respect it more than I am like, uh, I'm not like shocked or appalled by it. No, like, I'm not like, Oh God, not this at is all. hard. This is hard to watch. No, but I'm more like, I respect that. It was the first to do it. It's just, it's funny. And the thing is with, with this movie being of this camp, cause we talk about this where I know you, you expressed that even though you do like movies like this, it can be kind of a, a slog for you to get through and I feel that too. I totally understand it. You, I'll watch movies like that, that, and I know, like, yeah, this is a slog, but whatever. They're I'll watch cumbersome it sometimes because <laughs> they're, they're so like it's. Uh, I don't know. It's like candy, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's 
there's not a lot of substance to it. And you got to be in the mood to eat a lot of candy. <laughs> but that's the thing with this movie. It's not a slog. It's fun. Like, it's fun to sit through this whole thing. You know? Yeah, it's, it not, you go, it's not particularly long or anything either. So. Yeah. You don't get bogged down in it and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. There's not, they don't, they don't dawdle too much on unnecessarily long dialogue. And that's what happens a lot with these movies is the filmmaker just don't know how to like, you know, make dialogues. Yeah. They don't know how to make dialogue succinct. Um, or they'll just, they'll go off on these tangents on scenes that have nothing to do with the movie, you know, like some, like, a lot of movies, what they'll do is they'll engage in some sort of like um, development of like a, a romantic theme or relationship in the movie that has nothing to do with it. With it, if it's like a horror gore exploitation movie, where they're trying mm-hmm. to, I guess, create some three dimensionality to it by showing well these people are in love, and it's just like no, we don't. It's not working for this particular movie. But H.G. Yeah. Lewis, he didn't do that. He was able to really keep things succinct and moving along. Um, but with the gore too, I like that he, he kind of ups the ante with the tastelessness by having the uh, arm on the spit <laughs> during the hoedown. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's like that's a good, good way one. to just really stick it to him. <laughs> I would have loved to see someone like like taking a taking a rip off of a joint or something. You know? Yeah. Not a. I guess people can't see me because this is a fucking podcast. I didn't mean like smoking a doobie i meant like literally tearing a, some flesh off of a off of an arm <laughs> yeah right that would have been um, nice some some cannibalism yes exactly so <clears throat> we did talk about how yes like the yankees are kind of vapid or whatever but this is one thing i do like about hg lewis films um is that he did do a good job of picking like a pretty hot cast women <laughs> he really liked to use the hot blonde lady a lot and whether they're at, the, the acting chops were you know secondary as far as uh <clears throat> having them in the movie it was literally to have some hot blonde lady so like we have connie mason being a prime example who this is the second hg lewis film she was in she was a playboy playmate and H.G. Mm. Lewis is on record of being like, she was really difficult to work with and was a terrible actress. But, you know, she, she's she's good to look at. <laughs> yeah, he's very. Uh, he, yeah, he's very. Um, who, who am I trying to? Russ Meyer. He's very. Yes. Russ Meyer in that respect. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but to go back to the soundtrack. So we have the theme songs. And the um, the usage of what we consider indigenous Appalachian type of music, you know, running through bluegrass, the whole thing. Yeah, bluegrass. Yes, exactly. Country bluegrass. But one thing, and this is applied to other H.G. Lewis films, um, Blood Feast being one of them, is I like the uh, the ambient incidental music that he uses because it's always very creepy and off kilter and minimal. So like the use of organ and 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 foreboding drums, mm-hmm. that's like another character of H.G. Lewis films is he really he did have a good ear for that sound design and yeah. that background kind of music to kind of propel the drama or the the the, the tension of the film. So I like that a lot. 
I agree. Is there not um, hearing you talk about the music? It, is there not like interwoven into this like classic uh, Southern Civil War like songs that were incorporated in here, or are these are these all original uh, con- conceptual songs? As far as I know, they're all original compositions. You know what I mean? Like Civil yeah, War songs or ditties sure. that were fucking written. Yeah, yeah like the classic American songbook folk folk songs. Yeah. As far as I know, that they were all original. Like the South Will Rise Again shit. Yeah. But that would be interesting because I could see that being a thing too where, you know, he, he did draw from these old – Civil War era Southern songs. Well, that's what I, yeah, I guess that's what I mean. It was seamless. Like, I, it sounds mm-hmm. like shit that would have been written in that era, like an 1865 medley of, you know, South Will Rise Again narrative. <laughs> so, yeah. if this is original shit, I mean, he basically crafted Civil War songs seamlessly. Yeah. No, it, it's great. Um, <clears throat> I like some of the uh, camera work specifically on how it zooms in and portrays the locals after deaths and murders have occurred and how great reaction shots. Yeah, right. that's what I mean. Great reaction shots where it really, it'll pan in close on some of the leering kind of, you know, kind of nodding and approval looks. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like some of the older, like more curmudgeon-y uh, female residents. They're really into it. Yeah. They're just really living for these moments where they're getting they're getting their revenge and these Yankees are getting their comeuppance. So I mean, it only comes every hundred years, so and this is the first one. So right. you gotta really soak it all in. Gotta really make it last, yes. Um overall too, this is probably be the last thing that I talk about. And then I'll just let you have free reign if you have anything more to add. But I like this concept of the ghost town reemerging. Yeah. And all of the questions around the phenomenology as to how this would even happen. <laughs> and, and what have these people been doing for the past hundred years? <laughs> just I would imagine living like a listless purgatory existence. Right. And that's precisely what I was saying, because I was—I told you I was watching this with our friend Nathan from the Demolition Podcast, a little plug there. But, you know, he had his own commentary. He's just like, you know, what have they been doing, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> I, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, just, who are we to question the afterlife? I mean, right. I don't know what the fuck they've been doing. But I said the same thing. I said, well, I imagine yeah, they're, they're existing in some sort of purgatory <laughs> yeah which so. sucks because they didn't do anything i mean as a if we are to go by what the plaque says they were just living in pleasant valley and got massacred by union troops and so like i would imagine they're innocent individuals amongst right. them uh but yeah i guess they collectively as a town live in this this shithole purgatory of pleasant valley I guess shithole to us is <laughs> one man's yeah. shithole is another man's home. So I don't know. At the time, it looked like it was a nice enough town, you know? Yeah, it was fine, I guess. <laughs> um, 
that's all I got pretty much. What what do you want to add? I mean, I I agree with everything you brought up. I don't have any uh I, I don't disagree with with anything vehemently. Um the other the only other thing I would add is uh that I felt like and this is this is a compliment because it's one of my favorite television shows, but this feels like a very much so like a Twilight Zone plot. Yes. Um especially when Twilight Zone uh, extended their episodes to one hour formats um, and you would get kind of these more long sprawling uh, format episodes. Um, this does play out very much so like a Rod Serling episode. There's lots of Rod Serling stories that always end in like, and they were never there. Like every <laughs> nothing that you saw was was real and... You know, everything was either imagined or a ghost town or another reality or some shit. Uh, so, yeah, I I like it because it comforts me in the same way like Twilight Zone episodes comfort me. They're, I'm always waiting for the twist and they're always like well written and really make you think. And the only thing that sets this apart is obviously Rod Serling wasn't like, um, you know. Wizard of Gore. <laughs> right. That's what H.G. Lewis brings to the table. So, yeah, I, that's that's all I would add. Okay. So the bad. Um, this uh, this uh, movie has some pretty patchy audio happening with it. The audio yeah. department was real lacking because um, <laughs> we've got it's all over the place. We've got rooms where there's clearly no boom mics or anything like that. We've got weird dubbed in post dubbed uh, segments. Um, there's one part where I don't. Well, you watched on Tubi, so you would have watched the same version we did. But I yeah. don't remember this in in uh, the versions I've watched before. I have a DVD of it as something weird um, DVD. But during the part where they're doing the, about to do the barrel roll, did you yes. catch where? Yeah, what, what the, the hell was going on? I don't know. I don't know if that's something that happened later on, or if that was intentional. Where they pitch shifted the voices of the mayor and and and, and yeah, they, they sound like uh, Satan from South Park. Like <laughs> they, it's like this baritone. It's like all of their audio was slowed down, and so it gave like this baritone, echoey. Like I, I don't, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I thought my like feed was bad or something. Right. So you you got it too. Yeah. But it's funny because I kind of liked it. It was just because it's this <laughs> weird happenstance. Well, of- I was worried that the rest of the movie would be like that, and I was like, uh oh, I gotta listen to it like this. But yeah, no, it's just that scene. It was just that particular moment. But. It- but it's funny because it wasn't the guy, the Yankee in the barrel, the guy in the barrel, the the um, the Wells uh, husband. Um, it didn't happen with him. Yeah, his only- audio is fine. Right? What the hell? That's so weird. I don't know. So that was no, weird. I had the same exact problem. Um. Obviously, bad judgment and will to survive on the parts of the tourists. Yeah. I <laughs> they mean, just are completely fucking clueless. <laughs> they're also just like too complacent with being abducted. Right. Like, none of them could have a care in the world. Like they just 
go along with whatever is presented to them, no matter how ridiculous or inconvenient. Like mm-hmm. I could have really used the scene where there's like a spike strip and then someone from Pleasant Valley like offers them a ride to town while they work on their car or something like it needs to, there needs to be like some some reason why they're there other than they took a detour and are the guests of honor and everyone's like, I guess we'll just drop everything we're doing. Right. <laughs> go, go along with this, this stupid <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Um, do you have any other bads? Almost every single line delivered by a Pleasant Valley resident is a double entendre followed by stifled snickering, like almost yeah. every single line. <laughs> And it's my is a bad and a good because it's it's fun and quirky and and weird, um, but it like <laughs> I especially like when he's like uh, I I think it's um what's her name hold on Terry I think Terry is like well I wouldn't want to miss the the barbecue Mister Buckman and he's like oh you won't miss the barbecue little lady it's a time on a tradition to die for <laughs> and like everyone's <laughs> laughing like every, everything they say is just like some double entendre but they play they play with this exact thing in a treehouse of horror episode of the simpsons that this movie always makes me think of because principal skinner is eating fattening up the children and eating them in that episode and he's saying a a list of like double entendres um, but then he slips, he slips up and says like, I guess you could say we cooked Uder and ate him for dinner. Uh, well, and then he's like, he's, he's like, Oh, I slipped up. Forget that last one. This, like, this is what this reminds me of. It like borders on how is nobody catching on to what they're saying? But I, I love it. I hate that everybody says something, uh, you know, a double entendre of sorts. And then everyone's like fucking laughing about it. That's, that's yeah. also in my in my bad and good, to be honest. Yeah. Well, we already talked about the acting quality of the, of the, the Yankees, particularly again, Connie Mason, who, yeah, she's hot, but she is one of the most, it's funny. Cause she's just like, got that, like that total glazed over kind of yeah. airhead look the whole time. Like, ah, <laughs> no one's home. The lights are on. No one's home. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, those were my bads. You want to move on? Yeah. This is a, another, I feel question laden type yeah. of movie. Um, yeah, we already talked about how it's really questionable how easily these tourists are just persuaded to stay and give no resistance whatsoever. Um, did you notice that Shelby Livingston who plays B Miller who I also think is pretty, pretty attractive in her own, like kind of weird trashy way. Um, did you notice how bruised up she is? Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah, going, what on the there? going on? I don't, I don't know. Maybe something insidious. I, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. She got she roughed sh- up a bit. <laughs> she just showed up to the set like that. <laughs> Maybe she did um, a stunt early on and never recovered. So they had to shoot like that the rest of the time. Yeah. That leads me to what exactly is the Wells and the Millers friendship? <laughs> we have this couple that's completely, you know, out to lunch with their marriage. And then we have another couple that they've got a very steadfast, 
rock solid marriage. Why are they? Why are they, they're hanging with swingers, basically? Yeah, <laughs> they're but yeah, they're human cattle. Like it, it could be, it could be any litany of of things, and it, n- none of it matters. But yeah, right. It is like what? Why the hell are these four people? traveling together and do, and where are they going and what are they doing? Yeah. It's very, it's like an, almost like it's an odd couple situation. It is. So, um, when Tom is calling out from the payphone, a scene that you had mentioned earlier, and it turns out that the twist is he's actually talking to the mayor. Yeah. Why exactly is the mayor taking the time to write down what Tom is saying, just so he could turn it into a flaming airplane, paper airplane. <laughs> I didn't think about the fact that he was he was taking down the note. That's actually hilarious to think about that he actually was diligent enough to to write it down. Sure. So um, we talked about the pitch shifted voices. That's that's one. Um, how the fuck did they get that giant rock on that platform? I mean, they yeah, are ghosts, so <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah, they don't have a they don't have strength to worry about. I also just wondered, like, with the with hitting the you know hitting the bullseye with the baseball, I I didn't understand how just hitting that would release the. I I don't know. There's a lot. If the rock is that heavy, it's hard to fathom the the mechanics of that operation. Right. <laughs> yeah. So but yeah, I'm with you. A lot of questions with that. Um, why do they need just six victims? <laughs> do they talk about specifically that they need that number? Or is it just what they they happen to get? Well, I would think it was just six because they don't bother to hang out on the highway or the state, the state road anymore to get any more victims. They cap oh, it off at six. Well, that leads me to my other question, which is how do Rufus and Lester suss out which cars are are Northerners? License plates? Do they, they don't even know what a license plate is. Right. That's true. Okay. Which brings to this. We talked about the phenomenology and the metaphysics of the townsfolk existing in purgatory. But how did they figure out, yeah, anything relating to modern technology and modern commerce because cars wouldn't have existed. Also, the town itself has modern infrastructure and modern commerce. They have, uh, you know, they have an auto body mechanic shop. They have telephones. They have all these trappings of what would have been a contemporary town. So how did that happen? That, that, Literally makes no sense. Like there is no explanation for it. They all jump in a pickup truck when they're running after uh, Tom and and Fuckface. So that's Terry. what I'm saying. Like Terry and right. Tom. It's a good Terry and Tom. Um, yeah. So no, somehow, none of that makes sense. Yeah. During their purgatory, they're able to observe the world. Yeah, maybe they see the. But then where do they acquire? Like they had to have somebody come by and hook up. Like. Phone lines and right. shit. Right. Yeah, Again, yeah, I, think, I think that just doesn't track. <laughs> so there's all kinds of questions as to how that even would have happened. Which, yeah, it was very good. 
is funny to me. It's just hilarious to me <laughs> to think about where the mind will take you. Um, that's what I had. Questions? Any for you? Any more for you? How would you choose to die given the options presented in this movie? Oh, the barrel roll. Are you saying like the most fun for you or are you saying like the least painful? <laughs> well, at least painful. Yeah, that's true. Good, 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 uh, good point. The least the way painful, you said I barrel would... roll, you were like excited about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it would be kind of fun and painful. Would you die? That's what I thought. When he got to the bottom, I was like, would that kill you or would you just be severely maimed? Well, the, you can apply that to the lady getting her arm chopped off. I mean, I she wouldn't lose enough die. blood. And I, I think out of shock alone, yeah. you, she like passed out and died. And you'd also just lose a whole lot of blood. The barrel sure. roll, though, that's just painful as fuck. Like, that's just super painful. But I'm not sure you die because of it. I think we can both agree that being drawn and quartered is would be the absolute worst. <laughs> the worst. That's the worst. I would say the quickest way to die is the rock. She just immediately just gets smashed. Is out. it though? It's. I feel like. <laughs> I, what if that thing just falls on you and you're just? It's just like ow. <laughs> <laughs> I almost ow. spit out my water. <laughs> ow! A big rock fell on me. You fucking nerds. <laughs> that really hurt. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so having talked about this. You just, I love that you just went with barrel roll, like it's Action Park. Remember that New Jersey, uh, that <laughs> that water park in New Jersey that was like a, a Saul Goodman's wet dream? It was just like oh, it yeah. was literally killing its residents. Like they didn't test any of the water slides. You were like yeah. drawn to the barrel roll in a yeah. in a childish way that I find in, <laughs> find endearing. Throw me in that barrel. <laughs> Let's just die together. Put us both in the barrel. <laughs> tip to tip and lip to lip and rolls down the hill, daddy. Well, that leads me to think about we can have, uh, we can also develop all these other alternative, fun kind of like field day redneck ways that they could kill people. For instance, the murderous three-legged sack race. <laughs> Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's filled with, let's say, the sack's filled with poisonous snakes. Oh, fun. <laughs> A real good field day activity. What happened to field days? Right, exactly. Or also... Um, They're relegated well, to corporate picnics now. <laughs> yeah. Um, they actually did this in uh, Squid Game. I don't know if you watched Squid Game, but there was yeah. the, the uh, tug of war of death. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's super fun. Yeah, that could yeah. be in a. But see, these this is just uh, Jeff Bezos's cor- corporate picnic at Amazon headquarters. <laughs> right. It's just having the migrant worker show up and then do a tug of war to death as everyone cheers on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, all right. What, you got anything else? What's fun? <laughs> uh, no. All right. Cool. Just zooming along. Let's move on to our awards. And category section of the show. But why can't Beverly come with me? Now, Mr. Wells, I told you Mrs. Wells was going on a scenic tour. Well, why can't we be together? You wouldn't want to run the centennial, would you? Now be a good sport and come on with me to the barrel roll. Y'all the guest of honor. What's a barrel roll? 
soon we're gonna start as soon as you get there. performance well for me it's clearly connie mason because she's also been considered one of the worst actresses in film of all time so i went with billy the six-year-old redneck that kid is like the embodiment of what the david mendenhall award means like that's true you're right petulant child bad actor watch out yankees like he is like I don't know what he's doing. It is nuts, though. His interaction with Tom, he makes Tom look like an Oscar award winner. Like, he, the fact that they had to act together is hilarious. Yeah, I'm giving it to, to Billy, who just okay. wants candy from I, a stranger. That's fair enough, but I don't know. I think he's so over the top that I give him a little bit of a pass. You know, the way he delivers his lines like, Y'all are big liars. I didn't even get my candy. He's just knee slapping and, and gosh gee darning. Yeah, I, I get I get that it's fun, but I don't even give passes to children. So, um, the Frank and Booth did you award. see the tits on him? He didn't even have any tits. What am I supposed to look at on 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 Billy? Yeah, no tits on Back. Billy. That's a big that's a big <laughs> negative. Billy tits. I think that was a later H.G. Lewis movie. No tits on Billy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, the Frank Booth Award that goes to the character who best belongs in a David Lynch movie. So my mind went to Rufus because Rufus reminds me of Bobby Peru from Wild at Heart. Hmm. As being like, you know, the sleazy kind of. I really like that. I didn't have a specific. I'm just going to piggyback off of yours. I'm going to cheat off of your homework. Because I didn't really have a good answer, and I really like that answer. Yeah. Okay. The E.G. Daily Secret Admirer Award goes to the biggest on-screen crush. I mean, Connie Miller is definitely a babe, but I already indicated I kind of like the trashiness of B. Miller, so I went with B. Miller. I went with Betsy. Betsy's cute, too. Played by Linda Cochran, and I like uh, her... Her just like peddling moonshine and actually she's not peddling it. She's forcibly making people drink, uh, which almost makes her hotter. She's just a real nice slice of peach cobbler served a la mode. She really is. And she'd be fun to party with. You could definitely tell. Yeah, you could tell. Yeah. 
she shows up at a party with the two jugs with the triple X on the side, you know, it's time, it's time to go. Yeah. That's one like, uh, what is it? Um, what's the dude's name? The, the husband Miller that gets John Miller, John Miller. He gets drawn quarter where she's like giving him shit for being kind of like, um, being kind of like a new anyways in terms of drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Noob. He's like, come on, just hand me that white lightning. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he wasn't ready for the white light. He was not ready for it. <laughs> Clearly showed. Um, but welcome to Primetime Bitch Award goes to the best one-liner. So this movie has one-liners, but honestly, there was not one in particular that stood out for me where I was like, oh, that one's great. But So do you have one? No. Like you said, I don't <laughs> – nothing that like stands out or something that I like would – quote or whatever like it all is just very it's all very hee-haw <laughs> right because it's so hammy like you were saying with the bad it's it's easy to just kind of forget them because they all kind of run together yeah yeah, yeah. It, nothing stood out it, it's all just they all talk <laughs> with that accent and it just all comes out like molasses out of the mouth yeah so I guess none. <laughs> yeah, no, none. Nothing. So we're going to go into the wiki wormhole and topping it off with, well, we got the combo breaker here. We actually have some deaths, but only yeah. four. Only four deaths as far as I can tell. Well, we got to ease back into the water somehow. Yeah. So there we go. Four deaths. Those four Yankees, they get it good. All right, the wiki wormhole, aka the bullshit internet research portion of the podcast. This movie was filmed in fourteen days. Wham bam! Thank you, man. That sounds about right. Herschel Gordon Lewis has often cited this movie as his personal favorite, and I agree. It's my personal favorite, Herschel Gordon Lewis, as well. It's a real fun time. Mm-hmm. Connie Mason, who played Terry, was a Playboy uh, playmate for the month of June in 1963. And I looked it up and, yes, she's got a nice set of cans. What is that? Did they, what was the landscape of Playboy in 1963? What, you get uh, full frontal? What do we get in here? Yeah, you get a little bit of bush. A little bit of bush even. Wow. Okay. I'm a real sucker for the 50-60 pointy boob. It's really something. Yeah, the, the Madonna boob, yeah. Yeah, I love that. This was funny to me, and I, because I did just read um, a Herschel Gordon Lewis book called Taste of Blood, mm. something like that. I didn't know this, and I always wondered about the origins of this name, and I thought maybe it had something to do with this movie, but it does. Sort of. But the name of this movie inspired the uh, name of 10,000 Maniacs, the Natalie Merchant Band. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason why it's 10,000 is because they misremembered the name Mm -hmm. of the film, so they called it 10,000 instead of 2,000. So, And John Waters is uh, multiple Maniacs. Which that was the next thing I was going to bring up. This inspired... That's okay. Way to step on my dick there. Stepped on your wiki dick. Yeah, so this inspired the plot points for uh, 1970s Multiple Maniacs. 
it's funny with the 10,000 Maniacs things because 10,000 Maniacs is a very, like, kind of, like, froofy, running through the Dandelions indie alternative rock band to name their band after a gory, campy 60s exploitation film. Seems a little odd. Yeah, it's, uh, it does not, certainly, it's false advertising. Yeah. And like it's like, off. it should be, like, when you see necrophagia, you're like, I think I know what music this is going to be. <laughs> right, right. It's not going to be some Lilith's Fair <laughs> crooning over an acoustic guitar. And you're like, what? And to, and to have quadrupled the amount of maniacs in order to do so. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you even tacked on an extra 8,000 maniacs. 10,000 maniacs? Yeah, to do some Lilith Fair bullshit, like you said. What the fuck? <laughs> I don't get it. Okay. And finally, what I have is this film was reportedly shot in an area of Orlando, Florida that is now occupied by Walt Disney World. It's actually St. Oh. Cloud, Florida. Yeah. So every time somebody, a child is taken to Disney World or Universal Studios, uh, they are visiting... 2,000 maniacs in spirit. Little do they know. Okay. Anything you want to add to that? I do want to add this. I, and I, I challenge us to not challenge. I, I'm inviting you to watch this with me tonight. The 2001 maniacs sequel from 2005, uh, I think is, is a real great, Piece of shit. Um, it's got Robert England in it, first of all. And our girl Lynn Shea is also in it. So if that sweetens the pot at all. Um, I think it's I think it's super fun. Uh, and ironically, it's actually how I learned about this movie because I watched 2001 Maniacs when it came out in 2005. And not knowing that it was in any, rel- any relation to this movie. And so I saw it learned about this and then that's how i learned about herschel gordon lewis was through 2001 maniacs so i thought i'd at least mention it because it's got some some the king and queen of horror in robert england and uh lynn shay so let's watch it tonight maybe i'm wondering if this is if it was a robert shay affair i'm sure robert shay had a hand in it considering that it's uh, yeah it's a, Lions, together. it's a Lionsgate film well but Robert Shea was uh, New Line. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Then no, it's a Lionsgate movie. You're right. New <laughs> yeah. The house that Freddie built. I'm sorry. The house that Freddie built. Exactly. But yes, I totally I'm down to watch it because I, we didn't really mention it uh, up top. But yes, I am in your home again. We're uh, yeah. we're here together. So I'm going to subject you to some some real horror. <laughs> some real <laughs> some real horror early well, 2005s <laughs> your early 2005 horror is real horror well no i thought you were saying <laughs> what you're going to subject me to when i'm sleeping tonight <laughs> what oh, are you going to well, do <laughs> nothing nothing maybe some some raspberries i don't know feeling a little wet willy in my ear what's what's that what's going on man <laughs> oh, well. wet willy if you're lucky Oh, buddy! Oh, don't don't tempt me with a good time, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 
you want to rate this? Let's rate it. What do you give this, Pat? Oh, wait. What? Out of what? Out of, uh, let's see, out of five. Those out little of five, nooses. Those little nooses. I did want to mention that in the in the good. We didn't talk about the the nooses and the cat killing. Here we got it some was in my It was in my bad, but not in the way you think. I was going to say... That Tom using that as a as a a mirror ornament is probably not going to track. Very very nice. Yeah, but yeah, but, we got some. Yeah, we, we got some proto gummo here. Yeah, with yeah. the hanging the cats. <laughs> yeah, this is proto gummo. So we got tiny nooses. We've got um, arms on a spit. We've got bloody barrel. N- n- Bloody nail, nail-filled barrels. Detour signs. Detour signs. I still think the nooses, the little nooses, the little little baby nooses. Out of five baby nooses, what do you give this, Pat? <sighs> These movies are always tough because it's like if you give it a four out of five, you're saying that it's it's Schindler's List. <laughs> Yeah. But to us, you know, maybe a four or a five is is different because categorically uh, we watch and review um, more underground and, and disparaged movies. I'm going to give it a three out of five because I do enjoy it, but I respect its tradition and um, what it paved for later movies more than the actual movie itself. Sure. Yeah, I can see that being a thing. I'm going to give it a three and a half veering into four out of five. All right. Okay, Pat. What, pray tell, are we watching next? Well, I am totally ill-prepared for this, so this is going to be interesting. I'm going to go to my list and maybe just choose something at random. Um, You know what? Let's do this. Uh, We haven't had our main man Jackie back on the pod oh. since since uh, last season when he made his triumphant debut. Um, so we're going to do my favorite uh, Jackie Chan movie, Rumble in the Bronx from 1995. That's so good. I thought you were going to say, uh, what is it, uh, Wheels to Meals? Because we've been talking about that for a while. Yeah, also. Wheels on Meals. Um, Wheels on Meals <laughs> fucking rules, and it's on my list as well. But I think Rumble in the Bronx is something I saw as a child, and Wheels on Meals is something I came to later in life. So Rumble in the Bronx is more nostalgic for me. Um, I'm not saying it's necessarily better, but... I love Rumble in the Bronx a whole lot. And Jackie does some some of my favorite choreographed fight shit in it. So Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going back and hanging out with our dude. Because it's always a good time. Rarely oh, is it yeah. ever a bad time, I would say. No. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for our intro music. Our outro music today is Hemophiliac. Plug here. This is a project I'm doing with John Caution. He was a guest of ours during our Flicksober series last Halloween month. And we have a demo out, so check us out. we got a band camp, Hemophiliac 666. It's a song cycle based off of these Virgil Gordon Lewis movies, so it seemed appropriate. 
Uh, and if you're a band and you would like to submit a song, feel free to drop us a line. And if you have a question, at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. That's F-L-I-X. We also have an Instagram at midnightflixpod. And we have a TikTok. Woo-hoo. So you can catch us on multiple platforms. So signing off, I am Adam Walker. And there's Pat Mitchell. He's off doing something. We will see you next time in the box. Yes. Well, I hate to see you go, but I'm dying to have you back. Woo!